My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Hey there, welcome to Unlock Your Potential, where we get to have amazing conversations with amazing human beings in our quest to identify the common denominators of outlier success in this world across a wide variety of industries and categories and types of human beings. Today, we are joined by Lee Benson. He has over 25 years experience as a CEO. He grew a company called Able Aerospace from three to 500 employees in 15 years, sold it for well over $100 million. The exact amount is not published, but obviously did really, really well. He is the author of a book called Your Most Important Number. And I just had an incredible conversation with Lee. The guy is brilliant. Um, incredibly good at inspiring people to see a vision for and then to articulate a methodology for simplifying success in business. On that note, let me uh, cut to my conversation with Lee Benson. All right. Excited to uh, chat here with Lee Benson, dig into his experience personally and, and all the ways that he helps uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs and business teams produce better results for themselves. Lee, welcome to Unlock Your Potential. So glad you're here. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a few days now. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, we'll jump right in the deep end here. And I've been looking forward to it as well uh, in, in no small part because a close mutual friend of ours has been telling me how uh, not only how much he thinks we're going to really hit it off, but specifically how valuable your relationship with him has been for his business um, so he has no pressure, but he's, the expectations are very high right now. Very high. So, um, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and I think, uh, if you're listening on a podcast, you can't see what I'm seeing, but if you're watching on YouTube, you can, which is that Lee has not just like a, a home studio recording studio behind him. He, Lee basically looks like he's recording at a nightclub right now. Uh, with a full setup behind him on a stage with the sound walls for the drums and a full suite. Some, I see some big, nice amps, some expensive gear. Like that's a serious musical outfitting you have there. You are clearly no dilettante in, in music. Yeah, the, this is my home office music studio. So it's a world-class recording room. Uh, put a lot of thought and time into into getting it right. So, but we'll also do live events here. It could be uh, there mm. could be a couple hundred people here at the house. It could be a streaming event for a charity. Uh, but also when it comes to recording drums, this is arguably the best room in Arizona and rivals probably most of what's going on out in L.A. I love it. I, I have a, a pretty extensive music background in, in terms of performing and, and recording. And um, a lot like you, from what I understand, uh, you know, it you can make a good living. Uh, but I, I started running businesses and building those and think, wow, this is a lot of fun. And there's a lot of similarities between the two. So now I've got this amazing home space where I can play, record, do whatever I want on my terms, as well as keep running businesses and work with a lot of clients out there. So I, I love it. Well, you, you had no idea coming into this how inspiring this was going to be for me. So... Uh, my wife and I, we, we bought some land about two years ago and we are in the kind of final design stage where we're actually waiting on some city committee approvals. But basically, we're going to break ground on a new house here pretty soon. And my vision is exactly what you just described. Like what you just said about Arizona, I want to be true for the state of Utah in our new house. So this is like really inspiring for me to see. And I love the idea that you literally can have parties, you know, have people come over mm -hmm. and perform for them. So. 
I'll tell you what, not on this uh, recording because it would probably be a lot, it would not be that useful or interesting to our audience for me to ask you all the things I'm thinking about building a, a home studio space. But uh, or actually, there's probably a different podcast where that would be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, um, we, we, we could do that, but let's uh, let's uh, connect after this and I can get you with my team, show you the designs, what we went through. Oh. It's uh, I, I found the, the <laughs> team to do this and it's all yours. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. OK, yes. Yeah, so uh, with an eye toward the audience, I'm going to set that aside for now. Reconnect with Lee. I'm super stoked for personal reasons. But let's get into your background as a musician. Um, because this, I do think, is really valuable for the audience. And I have uh, often said that my training for entrepreneurship was my 10-year my career as a jazz musician. And it sounds like uh, you might align with me in that regard. So I'd love to hear about your background, your career, and, and in particular, how you think it set you up to go on to do all the things you've done. Yeah, well, sure. So I, I started playing guitar when I was uh, barely six years old. So I don't remember not knowing how to play. And I, I did it all through grade school and, and, and high school. And by the end of high school, I'm playing in a number of different bands. And, and then a number of the years in the 80s, I played over 300 nights a year out in clubs and, mm -hmm. you know, originals, uh, covers did, did both of it. And that was really my first business. And, you know, we had a, we had a sound crew, a light crew, rhythm section changed out a number of times throughout that decade. And everybody got paid. Uh, we actually made a really good living, but that that exposed me to running a business. And and the way I think about it is when you're a musician, at least in my my mind, we're conveying an emotion. So whether there were uh, 5000 people in the audience or it was just the cook and a bartender, if nobody showed up, I still love the emotion that we created and sort of uh, conveyed through the music. And so you're connecting with everybody around you. You're having this musical conversation. You're creating something. What's so different about those that are wildly successful in business? It's it's the same thing. It's a it's a bunch of folks that you're positioning them to create the most value. You're working together, and and rather than you know creating, I would say, emotional value through the music, we're creating uh, material and emotional value through the business that we're going after. And you know, I, I think about it in terms of connecting culture to financial results and 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 how we all interact and, and actually do that. So I think it sets us up beautifully uh, to be successful in business. It's it's the same. It's not different. So when people ask the question, how could you go from music to you know entrepreneurship and have a nine figure plus exit and several you know uh, exits in between? Well, it's the same thing to me. You know, that's so interesting. I, I very, very often draw what I would call sort of a technical equivalence or a technical parallel between entrepreneurship and jazz, where it, there's a certain amount of kind of constraints that are intrinsic to the, 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 the method or the, the paradigm. And then within those constraints, you're free to improvise, right? And that's, that's very true to entrepreneurship. Um, but I never really thought about it in terms of the collaboration within a group to create a culture or an emotional experience that your audience, or for purposes of the metaphor, your customers are essentially invited into. Um, and, and, and that it's more than just, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it, it's greater than the sum of its parts. It's more than just the notes and the melody and the rhythm and the harmony and the hook and the chorus and the, and the, and the verse there's a there's a a zeitgeist that you're creating with a group of people that 
many hundreds or thousands, or if you're, you know, Dave Matthews band, millions of people want to be a part of. And that's really what running a business is. I've never thought about it that way. So thank you. Yeah, I, I think it really is. And the product is creating value. And yeah. I always say, and completely um, align with this, best value wins. You create enough value, perceived and actual, people will buy the product or service. And the more value you create, the, the further, faster it goes, the more you grow and, and all of it. And I think it's fascinating that if you ask most employees in any type of organization, the direct question, how do you create value for your organization? They don't have a very good answer. They'll give you a list and say, well, I do these four things or five things or whatever it happens to be, but but they don't have very good answers. What, what's your thinking on that? Uh, my thinking is that I'm literally writing down right now on my next series of one-on-ones to ask that exact question because it's funny, I, I actually was on a coaching call earlier today Um and one of the things I was, ta- I was with my business partner and we have an executive coach and I was talking about uh, throughout our organization, how I sometimes bump up against what feels like a lack of, of a certain type of clarity with people around things that you would think would be obvious. And, and what we happened to be talking about was one of the things I like to do in leadership in my company is talk to people about their, their personal goals their personal, you know, what is your personal mission statement? I I actually like to know what are people's personal financial goals, because I think it's really valuable in an organization to have this transparency between, you know, I'm a CEO slash owner, right? So between me and the team member to say, hey, they know that I know what they want for their life. And and then I become a stand to say, hey, we're going to collaborate so that your work here can, we both know and trust that this work that we're doing together in this organization is getting you where you want to go personally. And that way, I don't ever have to wonder if you're out secretly shopping your resume on LinkedIn or, and frankly, you don't have to wonder if maybe your team members or your teammates are out there doing the same thing because you know that I'm this like singular point of alignment where everybody has shared what's important to them personally. And that I'm invested in making it so that your work here is a part of of your journey toward that rather than just a thing you do to trade time for money until you can get off the clock and go do what's important to you. Right. So that's, that's my philosophy. But I guess all that to say, I've been surprised at how much sometimes very intelligent, highly placed people in an organization struggle to answer what seemed like they would be very basic questions. Yeah. I've learned to never underestimate somebody's ability to not connect the dots. And so what you say, everybody should Mm. just know most can't connect the dots. So we actually have to do it. And, you know, one of the things about this methodology in my, my book, um, your most important number, it's, it's, it's called the mind methodology, which stands for most important number and drivers. Every team will have one number that says above all others, they're winning or losing the game. And it will drive the majority of the right behaviors. It has to do those two things. At the top of a for-profit company, it's typically some version of profit or cash flow that's capital intensive. But as you go to every team, they will have a most important number. When it's improved, it creeps up and improves the next one up and ultimately benefits the company. So in organizations that we work with, if you ask a leader, how do you create value for this organization? It's a very powerful answer. This is my team's most important number. This is the work we're doing to improve it. Here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. And this is why we have confidence that we're going to get there. And then a, a non-supervisory employee you know, that, that works on the team would say, 
by doing my part in my role to achieve these outcomes to improve our most important number. And I think I think that's that's everything. It fully aligns them to the value they're designed to create. And, and I said it earlier, but every organization is designed to create value. We should understand that, I think, as as a team, every single team member, and we shouldn't make an assumption that they actually get it. And when I think about and, and this incorporates what you're what you're talking about, but when I think about what does it mean to be a leader within an organization? And I think the, the simplest um, uh, version of that that applies so far to every company or organization I've seen is that leaders get results and foster an environment where every team member is intrinsically motivated and empowered to create more value over time. So when you think about that, um, that's the environment you're setting up. So when you notice them, you genuinely care about every single team member and their aspirations, where they want to go. You're giving them the tools. You're removing barriers. You're being really clear about the value that we need to create. You're, you're um, including all of them and collaborating to accelerate that value that we create. They all own it. It's a lot of fun. It feels like winning. And, and I think that culture, which again, you know, let's connect culture to financial results, um, is what keeps everybody. You couldn't and you know if you if you do it right, you you couldn't have competitors peel them out for twenty percent more money because they don't want to give up how much fun they're having working yeah. with this team. Yeah, yeah. So I want to dig deeper into the mind methodology. I want to dig deeper. I mean, uh, to call it what it is, I want to I want to get as much free consulting as I can get in this hour. Let's do uh, it. And 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 I'm, I, I say that you know half joking, obviously, but. But what I also want to do, because I'm always, I always really do try to be sensitive to our, to the audience here. My, you know, inquiries around your home studio, notwithstanding, um, is like our audience, there's a, it is a blend, right? It's obviously, this is a kind of an entrepreneurial business slash life focused podcast. And there's people at different stages. And one of the hardest things about having business conversations is depending on what stage people are at they can be very interested or very alienated by the conversation, just really just depending on the level or the stage. Right. And so I always try to have as, you know, cast as wide a net as possible, because at the end of the day, I believe that whatever level of entrepreneurship you're at, entrepreneurship is for most people is the path to the life you want. Um, And so I want to, I don't, what I don't want to do is not set the context for the entire audience Mm-hmm. Where as we go further into this hour with me and Lee, I'm, I'm going to declare my intention. We're going to get into the weeds of some higher level business stuff, but I want everyone to have the context that like, mm-hmm. first of all, 5, 10, 20, you know, whenever we both started, we were ignoramuses like anybody, right? We, this is all stuff we've learned through our journey. A couple of musicians talking about what we've learned about growing nine figure companies, right? And to really try to inspire everyone that like, if, if, if you're if you're in the middle of let's say you have a business that's at some significant scale, where a lot of our conversation will be super applicable for you right now. If not, those pieces of it that I'm referring to, I, I want you to try to process them through through a vision or through a future pacing for yourself of like, yay, these are the kinds of challenges I'm going to be facing as I matriculate along my journey, right? So I, I just kind of want to set that stage, and then before we get into kind of the business weeds. Um, could you could you connect the dots for me uh, on how you got from musician to obviously you had an exit and then I think since that exit uh, correct me if I'm wrong but you've you've essentially been consulting 
developing a, a, a framework or almost an operating system as well as consulting people on implementing that operating system. Can you just kind of stitch that journey for me? Yeah, sure. In the 80s, uh, a lot of that during the day, just to earn additional money, I was working in an electroplating shop that was repairing turbine engine parts, ultimately getting to um, airlines. And and then in 93, my boss said, closer to sell it, I'm done. You've got 30 days. We lost pretty much all of our business overnight. And I said, you know, I really like this. I want to go this direction. He said, it will never work. And I said, well, let me assume the debt. It was about 600000 in debt, no cash out of my pocket. And and if I didn't make it, I didn't. I wasn't uh, obligated to pay the debt. But if I did, I was. Well, we definitely made it. Went from you know, twenty five employees down to three when we lost our most of our business, and then grew that to over five hundred. And mm-hmm. uh, they got paid back fully, and we had a really nice uh, nine figure exit. And the company that I sold it to, and I rolled up a couple of aerospace companies into one. Um, left them position to grow to a, to a billion dollars. So that's, that's kind of the quick thread. So I'm how, running how long my, was that from 93 to what, when was your exit? Uh, so 95, 2000, uh, it would have been 95 and 99 where I set up the companies that I, that I sold. So the one that I took over, I got out of that in, in early 2000 and the exit was January of 16. Yeah. So I, I want people to hear this, like, when I talk about entrepreneurship as the path for most people to the life they want in you're you were like me, musician, right? I assume you were not a wealthy musician. I don't know many. Um, Correct. Correct. And, and, and in five years, did I do that math right? No, from from it, here we are from 95 from Able Engineering, which turned into Able Aerospace and Able Systems and Technology and and uh, a couple of others that rolled in when I sold in 16. So, you know, fast forward about 20 years. Okay. So in 20 years, created a nine-figure outcome. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that's climbing the, the ranks at Long John Silver's that's got a 20-year track to a nine-figure outcome. I mean, entrepreneurship, let me just say it, it's the bomb. Now, I realize you had, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You knew all the right people. You know, uh-huh. Daddy Warbucks got you your first job. You had a Wharton MBA, right? All that is true, right? That's hilarious. No, uh, parents struggled big time with money, went to five different high schools as they were moving around trying to make ends meet, kicked out of the house the beginning of my senior year in high school. Hmm. Because I started what I call the value creation stressing journey early. I mean, I'm I'm pulling weeds, mowing lawns, paper routes, busboy, cook, you know, all of that. Um, by the time I was kicked out, it would, you know, paying for all that was a non-issue. So I was used to being really responsible financially, but no, didn't come from any of that. Started college, but when it comes to business, why am I learning from people that don't even know what's going on in the real world? It makes no sense. I like being on the front lines and doing and learning and creating value and kind of back to best value wins. Learn that kept creating more and more over time. And I trust that work. It works every single time. The resiliency that comes with being an entrepreneur, though, which is part of what I'm getting from what you're saying, wildly important. Some people look at it and say, I wish that just happened to me. I'm like, yeah, right. This is my 40 year overnight success story, you know, here that it doesn't it doesn't just happen. But enjoy the work, enjoy creating value, whatever that is, and even take it to the family. So what if are all of our kids made more of their identity, the value they're creating in the world, not how many TikTok likes and all these other things that really make it happen. 
uh, for them and it, and it, you know, they become depressed I and mean, it really affects emotional energy in, in a negative way. And when I think about value creation, you know, there's three main buckets um, from my view, it's material, um, it's emotional and it's spiritual. So you pick it. And I actually think, you know, when people uh, say the scarcest commodity is time, I don't think so. I think the scarcest commodity is emotional energy. I'd rather only live to 25 years old on 10 than live to 120 years old on two, because I, I, I feel like I can accomplish anything when emotional energy is high. So wouldn't that be cool to have that conversation with our with our families and say, you know, hey, how much value would you like to create in the world? And, and you know, get the kids starting as early as kindergarten, start the language before that um, in the household and, and expose them to some things. But over time, let them let them, you know, course correct on the value that really resonates uh, with them. That would be an incredible world to live in that as opposed to get a good grade. I know you can do better. Get a diploma, get a degree, get a job. Ugh, that does not sound very inspiring. But if you made more of your identity, the value that you create in the world, why is the world a better place because of you with real measurable value? That would make a dent. So thank you for articulating stuff that I hold so dearly in a different voice and with different words. Um, I think there's there's strength. And again, it's literally why I started this show, by the way. This show is a quest to go out and identify and validate those common threads through outlier success stories. And, you know, I've got, I don't know what episode this is, 225 or 30 or roughly in that ballpark. And you just nailed one of a handful of core tenets that I have identified as ubiquitous in all outlier success stories. And it is value creation, right? Um, one of the, one of the things we've done in my business, Entra, is we've, we've fashioned a definition of entrepreneur. I mean, our company's called Entra, right? We're, we're kind of trying to like retake that term. I think that term has gotten like flogged and squashed into meaningless, into either meaninglessness or unapproachability, depending on which angle you view it from. Whereas like people think entrepreneur is like, oh, I'm going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. I'm going to build the next multi-billion dollar app and, you know, live on ramen for four years in a, in an attic in Silicon Valley until I make a billion dollars or whatever. And it's like created this almost, almost irrelevance where entrepreneurship is viewed as like a synonym, almost like winning the lottery, right? Right place, right time, right idea, right background, right outcome. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, so, so anyway, we've tried to redefine it and kind of recapture, and this is our definition. It's a purpose-driven person who lives the entre way, which is like a proprietary, you know, set of values that we defined, but a, a purpose-driven person who lives the entre way takes ownership of their results in every area of life and expects compensation only in exchange for value created. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how we define an entrepreneur. And what's so cool about that to your point is you can, you can take an entrepreneurial approach to any part of your life, not just your career or not just business. Uh, you can, like you said, you can be an entrepreneurial parent based on how you teach your children. You can be an entrepreneurial spouse based on what, what you expect from your spouse. In other words, you know, expecting compensation only in exchange for value created. Well, am I, you know, love is a form of compensation. Am I expecting love because we said some vows 14 years ago? 
Or am I creating value in this relationship that constantly re-enrolls them into the future life that we're building together? You know, it's like, it's just a different way of seeing the world. And that, and that's in the category of um, emotional energy, which is mm-hmm. wildly important. And that's the one of the things I love about music. It, it can be such a force for good for positive emotional energy, but it can also be a force for good for the opposite of that. And, and I, um, I like to, everything you said completely resonates with me, completely agree, absolutely love it. And I always try to, you know, simplify things. And then once I've got that, I simplify it even further. But for me, entrepreneurship, um, it's, it's loving, creating value in the world in a win-win way. I think that's what it is. And, and in a win-win way, if I create the value, I want to be compensated. The money that I make, it's inextricably linked to the impact I have in the world. So they accrete to each other. They grow with each other when you're doing it right. And I kind of wish that we changed the terminology uh, rather than capitalism, that we said value creationism. Because capitalism is almost, um, well, almost exactly like or synonymous with crony capitalism, where you're creating special deals to prevent others from creating value and further solving problems. But I, I like that. That's how I think about it. I, I want an equitable level playing field globally. So best value always wins, which improves lifestyles and conditions for every family on the planet. Unfortunately, we have too much crony capitalism going on and we have to, we have to keep fighting it. It's just part of human nature, yeah. whatever. I'm, I'm a super happy warrior and just staying in the game and going for it. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's funny you talk about capitalism. You bring that up. That's a, a huge part of my crusade in the world is around restoring the reverence for capitalism. You know, because it, frankly, I think entrepreneurs, we love and revere capitalism in the right sense, in the true sense of the way you're describing. But it's actually the vast majority of people that have, you know, so again, have sort of taken this. I don't know. It's almost like a populist view of or a populist negative view of capitalism. Just It's really just based on like inferences and, mm-hmm. you know, what some people in the media and some politicians have to say and maybe what some you know per- person tweets every now and then. it's not like really what the word means is not how it's understood in society. But I like that if you if you call it maybe it needs a new name. It's like that that scene at the end of never ending story when they're like, it'll all be fine. The Empress just needs a new name, right? Like maybe we just need a new word for capitalism and we'll heal our civilization. But, but anyway, that's why I I like value creationism and it's an interesting cultural time on the planet. I've always thought, at least for the last several decades, the most powerful weapon in recorded history is weaponizing false morality. And so if they can, you know, a conflict entrepreneur, if you will, you know, leadership um, in the political circles and, and otherwise, if they can find something, you know, create some movement to weaponize like, um, you know, business leaders are bad. Now they've designed this conflict to get people all ginned up um, to further something they want. Um, and it and that takes completely away from the good that, you know, capitalism or as I think of it, value creationism does in the world. We've lifted you know, billions out of poverty. There's, there's when best value wins and everybody's working on it, everything rises. It's incredible. And then when they say capitalism doesn't work, well, crony capitalism doesn't, but you actually know it works. Those that are saying it, you just want to leverage this to, you know, uh, some end that that's important to you. At least that's, that's the way it looks to me. And every time I look under the covers, that seems to be the case. Yeah. So we could, we could take a hard, I almost said a hard left, I'm going to change it to a hard right, pun intended. Uh, 
into politics with this conversation, which I can already tell you and I would totally agree about. Um, and I'm just going to tell you a resounding amen to what you're saying, because we are we're like so aligned. I'm, I'm literally reading uh, a, a great book right now. That's a, it's a parallel biography of Keynes and Hayek. Mm-hmm. who people don't know, Keynesian economics and, and the Austrian school of economics. And it's essentially the origin story of the false pseudo conflict that you're somewhat describing, right? Which is capitalism, a mechanism for empowering governments to control people, or is capitalism a mechanism for empowering the governed to be less controllable? And it depends on which type of capitalism you engage in. And uh, it's really, anyway, really interesting. Yeah. I'm so glad that we agree well, I, uh, Rebbe, just one, one yeah, go ahead. I'm not part of any political party. I don't want to be. I just want to support things and people that will create better conditions to work, live, learn, and play. That's all I care about. That's where I go. And, and I think most politicians globally get it wrong for, you know, unfortunate human nature issues, but I'm going to keep fighting for better conditions for families and communities, because that's the answer to all of the issues that are going on in the world right now. And to be clear, you and I, I think agree, because I I believe this too. I I don't look at entrepreneurial education, which is what I do and do it in a different way. What you do, Mm -hmm. I don't look at it as like, Although I happen to think it's a great business model, that's not actually why. It's a way to get to scratch the itch of being entrepreneurial and engaging in value creation, but also getting to move the world forward, you know? Hey there, sorry to interrupt the show, but I just have a quick favor to ask. So we recently broke into the top 100 podcasts in the entrepreneurship category. We've been hovering around 75 and we're really trying to push up into like the top 20 and grow the impact of the show. So if you enjoy what we do here and you're a supporter, the biggest thing you could do to help would be to leave us a positive review. Uh, Whatever platform you're listening on, you should be able to leave a quick review. Let the world know what you like about the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let's get back to it. So yeah, I, I do what I do and it sounds like you do too for a multiple, multiple complimentary reasons, right? Um, so, so let's go back to, okay, you scale this electroplating company for the aerospace industry. Yeah. The company that I purchased, it was a specialized job shop doing electroplating. It was called brush plating. So you did everything by hand. And you had no training in this industry. I mean, you were a musician doing this on the side to make money and kind of grew into it. Right. And, and I, I just learned, it's like, what is yeah. this thing? It's, it's fascinating to me, you know, even as a musician, because we didn't have a lot of money, I built our, our lighting board. I built, built all the stage. I built the speaker cabinets, like super handy is like for a few hundred dollars, you could build what costs thousands of dollars. So I would, I would do that. So I always love all of that, working my hands and figuring things out. But I figured that out. But when I sold it, you know, it started repairing uh, just, you know, imagine a turbine engine part that comes out of a, an engine off of a, you know, large aircraft. And we, we might uh, put some electroplating on it as part of the repair and charge $300. Well, our customer, which is now Honeywell, they would grind it, inspect it and sell that for ten to $20,000 to their, to their customer, uh, the aircraft operator. So I thought, well, hey, let's charge half that, go directly to the operator. We'll outsource the few things that we don't have internally until there's enough to justify bringing it in-house. And that's how we built the business. So we started with eight repairs. When I sold it, we had over 10,000 repairs that we developed, an engineering team of, you know, bouncing between 40 and 50 uh, to develop these things. 
And, and that was the value that we create in the world. And, and we, we could make a good case for saving the last couple of years before I sold the business, aircraft operators, a couple hundred million dollars a year over their next best value alternative to safely reduce aircraft operating costs. And we had hundreds of millions of flight hours on our parts and, and uh, not one single in-service failure that caused an aircraft to come out of service. No company I know could say that was incredible. But the broader point I'm making here is that we started with this one process and we leveraged it to go in a direction. And when I sold the business, it was less than a tenth of a tenth of a percent of what we did. We, we had um, uh, this, you know, 200 plus thousand square foot facility at the Phoenix Mesa Gateway Airport. As we moved in in 2013, it was too small. We had to lease more buildings in and around the airport. We did everything in-house. This was an amazing business, but it's it's incredible how if you listen to the market, the value that they're looking for, you identify more problems to solve for, i.e. create even more value. And it turned into the coolest business. We were in 60 countries. Um, our customers were in 60 countries, about 2000 of them. And I got to go to most of them setting up the business. And uh, how much fun is that? That was that was just incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and I think that, you know, and and we'll, this will kind of be my last statement before we get into some of the the methodology stuff. But you know, I think for a lot of times people hear that story. Maybe they hear my story. They hear successful entrepreneurial stories, and in their mind, there's kind of this idea of like, like they can't see themselves doing what you just described. Let's say they can't see themselves growing a from a little team to you know two hundred thousand square foot facility doing with customers like Honeywell or you know Lockheed Martin or whoever, right? Like how. But but to be clear, neither could you see yourself when you started. Right? So imagine the first year, 94. OK, I've got this company because uh, I, I took it over and it's debt the end of 93. Um, nobody got paid that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought we were going to go out of business at least 15 times, you know, trying to make payroll. I could see the potential to a $5 million business. Like, I think we can get there. Right. At the beginning, to your point, I had no no thinking at all that we would be this hundred million dollar company wildly profitable and and positioned to sell or not sell and they're both amazing options you know in in 20 years um yeah i I didn't think that but i could always see the next you know first it was five million after a couple years oh i can see 10 million after a few Mm -hmm. more years we hit five million i can see 25 and you just start seeing it but the, the whole thing is trust the work and if the whole mentality is how do, how do we how do we measure the the value we create as an organization and every decision every action is increasing that value that's the job of the founder and ceo in my view of any organization even nonprofits and the impact that they have um and you love doing that work and you love working with people and you know in creating this value you know with a team and everybody's a little to a lot messed up and that's okay um you'll trust the work and it'll be amazing, but always love being right where you're at and creating more value. And if you get frustrated, it's okay to struggle. I think we have to struggle to to grow and learn. It's totally normal. Even though today you're told you're not supposed to, if you're not happy all the time, something's wrong with you, which is a crazy statement for a lot of reasons. That's another turn we could take. Um, but trust that work and enjoy being right there and creating more value. And whenever you get frustrated, look back and go, What's better today than six months ago? And almost always it's, wow, if you're in this mindset of creating value, it's better. Um, if it's not, then you're not doing something right. You know, rethink that and go after it. But 100% of the teams 
that I've seen that design um, everything they do around creating more value and every decision and every action is, is uh, in pursuit of that. Um, it's always significantly better, even when they're really critical about all the things that are wrong right now. Stop for a second. Oh, my gosh, it's so much better today than it was. And I said, and isn't it additionally amazing that you've got this list of all of these things that when you address them uh, you know, properly, it will make a step change in the value that you're creating. That is so cool. Like I would hate to not have a list of things that aren't perfect. What do I do? Like, how do you improve on perfection, right? So learn to love that as, as a leader, that's our job. I, I want all this stuff. I wanna manage the resources. I wanna create the environment that unleashes this positive, productive energy. And I want a really good list of uh, big things to do. You can call them strategic initiatives if you want, but it could be for uh, any team relative to their team and any size of an organization um, that you want to go after to, to you know, make that step change in value creation. So in your journey, and I'm going to front load this by saying what I'm seeking is an, an encouragement, an encouraging word to the audience around delayed gratification. That's, I think, one of the most essential entrepreneurial skills is to recalibrate your relationship with time so that you're excited about the reward, but you don't have to have it right now. Um, I'm curious, what shape or, or how would you describe your arc to success? Knowing, and comparing this with the employee gets a job, 2.8% raise per year. It's basically roughly somewhat flat, but linear, slow growth. What was your shape over 20 years? Initially, it was building a foundation. So pretty flat, although relatively speaking, it went up quickly. So, you know, 360,000 the first year in 94, the first full year, and then uh, 700, high 700,000 range. Okay, well, that's not bad. 1.7 million. And then it just kind of kept going. And I felt like we stagnated at around eight and a half million for two, three years. And that's when I got really serious about being intentional around our operating system and um, connecting culture to financial results. Mm. And then, you know, it, it took off, you know, we're at 25, we're at 38, we're at 47, you know, just, it just started ramping up to about a hundred million dollars. And when a lot of the folks internally said, um, you know, we, we would, we'd love to sell, here's a, here's a strategic buyer. I'm like, okay. And if you want to, we will, cause I'd love to go this other direction and take what we're doing out to a million companies someday. That would make a huge positive dent in the world from what I want to do. And, and I, I did fine, like really well financially before I could have retired before I sold the company and an equally good, if not better option would have been keeping the company because of how we were run and the operating methodology and all of it. So um, I, I would say kind of, you know, getting to your question, um, I really think a lot about foundational readiness. What are the pieces we can put in place today? What are the decisions and actions we can take at any point in time for the best net return two to three years out is how I thought about it in aerospace. So we're going to maybe give up a half a million or $100,000 in profit this year, but the net total profit in two to three years will be 30, 40, 50% higher because of spending the time and energy to get the foundation right, whether it's equipment, um, uh, relate, you know, relationships with, with customers, developing people, et cetera. Does that, does that make sense? Does that resonate? Yeah, it, it totally does. And, and what I hope people are hearing, again, depending on, you know, which cross-section of the audience is, is, is sort of some affirmation of my, one of my strong beliefs right now, which is at least where we are in the world right now and what I see over the next 10 years 
I think building a business is one of most people's only option to stay ahead of inflation. You know, that what you just described 20 years from 300,000 to 100 million, I don't have, uh, I'm not rain man here, but I'm going to guess, you know, you were, you were doing, what, what was your compounded annualized rate of growth over that the, year period? The, the last 15 years were just a hair over 20% compounded annual growth. Yeah. And so the average raise in this country is 2.8% and we had 12% inflation in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. Hence my point. You yeah. know, you're getting 10% broker every year if you're just getting a standard raise right now. Mm-hmm. But in a business, you know, somebody, if somebody offers to sell you an investment that's going to, you know, pay you 20% a year, you need to dig into that investment pretty hard and really understand the risks because there might, it might be a, you know, something underneath that they don't want you to know about. But building a business, you can legit grow at 20% a year. And I mean, that's adjusted for industry and trends and all sorts of things. But as a general statement, I just think the upside of business ownership is so good. And I appreciate that you illustrated that so well. Um, so you talked about what you learned and how there was a point where you're like, yeah, if we want to sell, that's great. Because then I can take what I've learned and I can go out and spread it across a bunch of other businesses and do some great work in the world. Mm-hmm. Effectively, that's what you've done. So can we can we use that as a pivot into what it is that you've learned, how you mm-hmm. formalize that into your mind methodology and, and kind of what you've done with it from there and, and really what you do and how it helps? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we did an amazing job at the aerospace companies. Uh, we cascaded goals from the top all the way to the front line. Everybody had a quality, cost, safety, delivery and culture goal. And they interacted with them regularly. They knew how they created value. It was a little more complex. Uh, I'd say complex because uh, I, I don't believe traditional goal setting stands a test of time. And I'll get to why in a second. Mm-hmm. So this is amazing. And then I've got dozens of my friends and CEO groups saying, hey, we want to do that too. And one of my businesses back then was a software company I started in 99. So we had software to support all of it. It was great. And I said, sure, I'll talk to your teams. You can use the software. And then after a couple of years, after maybe three dozen, two are left standing. And I'm like, what happened, guys? And they said, it's not that it didn't work. We didn't have the discipline to drive it. And they actually kind of were embarrassed. They felt bad. They didn't have that drive. So I I believe something I've learned, the right leader can make anything work. I think it's unrealistic to expect to fill every leadership position with that right two to two to three percent of leaders that are out there. Right. So, um, in in fact, um, one of the things that kind of messed me up is Jack Welch, former CEO of General Electric. Uh, you know, he took notice back in two thousand eight and said, "Wow, you have the best business management system I've ever seen. If I had it at GE when I was running it, the results would have been exponentially better." And he said that because he could have followed, positioned and developed the top 2000 leaders by himself, you know, using our process. Whereas he said with our 400 plus thousand employees, the best we could do is position, follow and develop the top uh, 500, maybe 600 leaders. And with that explanation. And and he probably had to sift through a lot of people to find those 500 that were developable. Totally, because they just weren't clear about the value they created. You couldn't see around it like you could see with our software and our in our process. But then what I realized is what I was doing worked for me, um, won't work for that many people out there because they just don't have the discipline to drive. So now let's start on this ultra marathon of what will work for 80 percent plus of all teams everywhere. And that's evolved in what we call the. Um, the MIND methodology, which stands for uh, most important number and drivers. And I talked a little bit about it before, 
where the organization has a most important number. Um, uh, you know, startups, that number may change three or four times until they're a going concern, but that's okay. It keeps everybody fully focused. And then as you cascade out um, any size of company, or even if you're a solopreneur and you come up with that number that says above all others you're winning or losing and drives the majority of the right behaviors, that's how you guide your um, your mentors, your consultants, your contractors and um, all around you. And I love that I hear from solopreneurs that have adopted the mind methodology. They they you know read my book or they they heard about it long before the book came out. They said, all we did was change the language and every decision and action is around proving, improving what's most important. And within a year, our revenue more than doubled and our profits increased more than that. Yay. I mean, all we're doing is just changing the language and, and the focus going through. So now we have this most important number. And then for every team, what are the categories of work that that team should be really good at doing from an evergreen standpoint in terms of leveraging uh, those categories to improve what's most important. So that's the ongoing continuous improvement stuff that's happening. And then how are they making decisions and how aligned are they? And so when I think about alignment, what are all the things one team could do to improve what's most important? Do we agree on that? Yes. Have we racked and stacked it in terms of the ones that will create the most value? So we do them in the right order at the right time. And that's where decisions come in. Are we making decisions to do the right work at the right time in the right order? And then also driving accountability. So I, you know, the, the mantra is sort of alignment decisions, accountability. What percentage of the time are all the team members doing what they said they would do when they said they would do it? And, and so we're constantly improving on those things. And then that's great. Now we can see every team's most important number, whether it's a solopreneur or 40,000 employee organization with lots of teams, we can see the work the team's doing to improve it. We can see what they're talking about in meetings and the decisions they're making. We can see uh, all the actions and the sort of the culture of accountability. Like I could go into a client with 40,000 employees, hundreds and hundreds of teams, and within minutes, um, find seconds, find any team, but within minutes, assess it to see if they're just checking a box or if they're really leaning in to create more value through the team. So the, this, I, I guess what I would say is simplicity wins. Um, most operating systems out there, whether they're homegrown or it's popular ones like, you know, scaling up OKRs, 40X, EOS, there's a bunch of them. When you really look into the companies, like what's going on, you've, you've deployed this. Most employees can't explain how it works. And then when you audit goals, it's like, you'll I'll look at the goals like, oh my gosh, you know, 95 plus percent of the goals are not very thoughtful at all. And, and so traditional goal setting, it just doesn't stand the test of time. And what does it really feel like for the employees? Like for the leader that designed it and, and said, we're going to do this on paper, it looks great. If everybody just does this, it'll be great. But they say to every quarter, develop one or three goals, get it approved by your manager, rinse and repeat. That feels terrible. What feels really good Here's my team. This is the number that says we're winning. Here's the work I'm doing to improve on it. And as a team, we're going after it. Wow, that feels good. So rather than 80% of the teams having this work, it's literally working 100% of the time. There's a couple of times where it didn't work. And it was a failure at the senior leadership level when the mind methodology didn't work. And you know, the short story on that would be, if the most important number is profit and the senior leader says, I've decided I don't want to share that, well, the most important number and driver methodology can't work if you can't focus on improving the, you know, the number that is most important. So, man, you, that just that packed a wall of everything you said. So, first of all, traditional goal setting doesn't stand the test of time. Them fighting words for most 
manager. Um, and then, and then I think if I heard you right, you're basically saying that every individual and or every team and or every department or business unit or however your structure is organized mm-hmm. ought to be able to distill a single number that defines how they're creating value in the organization. But again, individuals, teams, departments, and so forth. Is that true? That's true. So each team will have a most important number. When it's improved, will improve the next one up. And you, you want to prove that. And, and again, this it's worth repeating. Each number has to say above all others, whether you're winning or losing and drive the majority of the right behaviors. Now, you will have other things that you measure, key performance indicators, measures, whatever you want to call them. But you're only measuring those things to help you make better decisions to improve your most important number. So all of them have it. And most teams we go to work with uh, initially, even at the top, there is an agreement on the most important number. And then I look at all the things that they're measuring and I ask them, how are you using those measures to make better decisions to improve what's most important? They don't have good answers. So we get rid of all of those that aren't helping with decision making in there. And so a really, really quick example. I know we're getting close on time here. Um, let's take a, a, you know, a function in most organizations, which would be HR. Okay, HR, what what do you think the most important number should be for HR? And the typical answer I get, and I've never gotten the answer that I like as the most important number for HR, but the typical answer is retention or engagement. So great, let's play that out. It's got to do two things, winning above all others and drive majority of the right behaviors. Let's pick retention. Okay, so I we we have a we have a hundred employees, a thousand employees, 10 employees, doesn't matter. Fast forward three or four years, we are 99% retention. I am winning. It doesn't matter that 70% of the team members can't achieve um, the outcomes their roles require them to achieve. So we just drove the wrong behaviors. Like a better, most important number for HR would be the percentage of seats filled with capable people. And so once you design the ideal structure of the organization, all of the roles that people will be filling within that structure, and you design one to three, no more than four outcome-based responsibilities that are that are measurable, or maybe 30 capabilities that they need, but it's only to achieve those outcomes. And then what percentage of all the t- team members today um, are delivering on those outcomes, you know, delivering or over-delivering and, and what percentage are below? Simple, right? Now it is now it's encouraging all the right behaviors. We're giving leaders the tools they need to develop uh, their their best teams. We're changing how we recruit to get people that are more capable coming in the door, fewer slipping through the cracks. That's it. I mean that that is that is really mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean the to sort of support your a- anecdote you just gave. The thing about an organization, especially if you're if you're a, you know starting a business. Um, you know, in the early days of a business, you, as you grow, the capabilities and standards that make somebody the right fit for a role change as the business changes. And so your goal actually is not to retain people. Your goal is to make, like you said, always have the right person in the seat that's suitable to the stage of the business. And as the business changes stages, somebody mm-hmm. that used to be the right fit might not be the right fit anymore. And you don't want to retain them unless they're growing with the business. That's correct. Or they move to some other place where they can uh, still mm-hmm. add to the value that we're trying to create. And I've had lots of folks, you know, in building the aerospace company, the senior leadership team changed out over 20 years, at least five times. And most of them stayed, went and worked in different roles. And, you know, sometimes we grow faster than people, but it doesn't mean 
they can't create value. Everyone can create value. And occasionally when it's culturally not the right fit for them, you know, my, my uh, belief is that we should help them find another job in a place where they are a cultural fit. And we should follow them for at least a year after they leave to make sure everything's cool. Hmm. And I think that's, that's a great. That's a great policy to have. And I, I did learn that from, from Jack Welch. I thought that was a, a great thing and not doing it cost us after we started doing it, even the most disgruntled employees, um, I would put them on my list to follow. And the first couple of calls are yelling at me. I was like, I'm, I know it wasn't the right fit. How's it going now? And then within a year or two, they, they might be at, at back then at an American Airlines and they're sending us work because mm-hmm. we followed them. But if you don't, you know, look at social media and all the yeah negative things they can say. Glass, they- glass door, man. Glass door will kill you now. Right. But if we really do care about people and not just saying it because you're supposed to say it, um, that's what you'll do. Man. So and and the other thing I love about what you said is is striving towards simplicity that and and if I want to make sure I'm understanding your sort of the, the, the first principle here, which is that like goals have to constantly be reset. So like you said, you know, EOS, like what are our rocks this quarter? Right. And that like every quarter they're new. And that almost creates a little, if I'm sort of interpreting what you're saying, almost inter- it creates a little bit of like a schizophrenic approach where like every three months I'm, I have a different priority. It's like, I never really got in my groove. And what you're saying is when you get clear on the most important number and driver, it doesn't change over time if it's right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So let's think about it as having all the functions in this ideal structure to achieve the main outcome you want in balance. Mm-hmm. Right. And and rather than a bunch of different goals, let, let's make it really simple. Let's say marketing, sales, um, operations, customer service. All right. So we we know that we're going to close a certain percentage of marketing leads that come in. So they start going up. Now, do we have the sales team that can close them? And we're constantly improving that. Now, if we start selling way more, the most important number um, is somewhere around you know gross profit delivery of service or product. Um, now, now we need to improve theirs, but their numbers won't change. So marketing is qualified leads, sales is closing profitable revenue, uh, you know, service um, or production is going to be product or service and um, usually gross margin because we want to deliver this right. high quality and we want that to grow over time. So their most important numbers don't change, but what does change is the forecast for those numbers, where are they at, where are they going and how are they going to get there and back it up with a believable you know, set of, of, of work that you can prove um, that you're doing to, to achieve those numbers. So they're, they're always moving around. And, and these numbers, as you look across your organization can be um, red, yellow, or green, you know, um, behind um, on, you know, at risk or, or on track um, and move through those colors three or four times a year. At any point in time, one part of the organization is going to be holding it back more than all the others when it comes to creating the most value that they can they can create. And I love it. I call it the organizational structure bottleneck game. Let's get all the brains on the team around improving that where they need help. And now we now we need to move over here while not dropping the ball with our teams on on our most important number and the work we're doing to stay in front of it. But it's a super simple approach. And now you're regularly assigning action items and putting different categories of work in focus and out of focus um, to to achieve your most important number plan, where you're at, where you're going, and are we on track at risk or behind at every every stage of the way? And now you're not setting three goals every quarter and yeah, 
they, and you're not and you're not resetting the goalposts every three months to where people it's like they, they, somebody could work for you for 20 years and essentially always be in the same lane heading in the same direction and maybe the the dial setting is a little different but the fundamental doesn't change and they can get really 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 damn good at going after that number yes and better and better and better and then yeah. when you ask the question how do you create value for the organization here's my team's most important number. This is what I'm doing around it. This is how I'm collaborating with other team members. Yeah. Man, genius. I I have a million questions that would probably take me into the realm of what I imagine people get when they read your book, people get when they hire you for implementation or consulting or coaching. Like what is, what is like, if somebody's hearing this and they're like, this is amazing. I want this for my business. Um, what, how do they engage with you or where do they go from there? Yeah. First, go to our website, which is themindmethodology.com. And, and you can find the book there. You can find uh, free tools and materials, videos. You can sign up for a leadership library. And I think an amazing first step is buy the book, read through it. If you listen to the audio book, I do 25 minute interviews after every chapter for more background and insights. Mm. And at the very end, I couldn't help myself. I put a guitar solo. I had to had to do that. Um, but start with reading the book and then just change the language and the focus inside your organization. I've got countless stories of folks that said we got agreement on our most important number. And we also got agreement on every decision and every action we take will be done to improve that number. And that alone and all the meetings made a big difference. And you can go even faster. But I, I suggest starting with the book. And if you want to see all the things we can do, um, you know, go to the mindmethodology.com. And the book, of course, is called Your Most Important Number, a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I cannot wait to read it. I'm I am admitting I have not read it. Uh, and I'm also admitting I know how much I need to change that. So, okay, um, I'm excited to read it. And uh, and and Lee, man, I, I I really wish we had more time. I feel like, like we could talk for the next five hours, and then we might get a meal, and then get right back at it again. So uh, yeah, and then, and then we'd have like a jam session. To I, I'll play keys, <laughs> you play guitar, we'll f carry the night out. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on Unlock Your Potential. I I think that we you've done a spectacular job of of really setting the stage of possibility for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and why why business is something to be really excited about and not have this antagonistic relationship that's so popular in the world right now like the stuff you do and the stuff you teach is is just flipping amazing it's it's value creation it's how we make the world a better place couldn't it couldn't agree more that's it should be exciting and anybody that creates jobs is a hero of mine so i hope this inspires another 100,000 people to go out there and create a job, another job or start a business that actually does that. Amen. Well, thank you again for being a guest on the show. And of course, to all you viewers and listeners out there, I say it every time. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. Thanks for spending this time together. I can't wait to do it again. Take care. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in 
check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.